Welcome to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. Today, in the first segment, we are joined by attorney and author Heidi Bogosian, author most recently of I Have Nothing to Hide and 20 Other Myths About Surveillance and Privacy. Andy Lee Roth, the Associate Director of Project Censored, joins the conversation where we'll talk about censorship and surveillance going hand in hand. We'll also talk about the importance of digital literacy as part of critical media literacy education to equip users of technology with tools to protect themselves online. Andy Lee Roth sticks around for the remainder of the program to discuss a recent op-ed he wrote called The Deadly Business of Reporting Truth. Journalists around the world increasingly face violence and leaders, including President Biden, have been slow to act. We are also joined by the executive director of Reporters Without Borders, Clayton Weimers. We'll talk about why we need to protect reporters around the world. Stay tuned. Welcome to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. Today in the first segment, we are going to talk about censorship and surveillance. Certainly things that we've talked about on the Project Censored show before, certainly things that are covered in our annual books. Uh, we are delighted today to be joined by two expert guests, two of whom should be no surprise to the folks in the Project Censored audience. Our first guest is Heidi Bogosian, New York City-based attorney, co-host of Law and Disorder Radio, and we're both on WBAI in New York. Heidi Bogosian is also executive director of the AJ Musty Institute, supporting activist organizations. Before that, Heidi was executive director of the National Lawyers Guild. Her book, Spying on Democracy, was published weeks after Edward Snowden's revelations of NSA mass surveillance. And Heidi's latest book is I Have Nothing to Hide and 20 Other Myths About Privacy and Surveillance came out last year. Heidi Bogosian, welcome to the Project Censored Show. Pleasure to be here. And our next guest also joining Heidi is Andy Lee Roth. He is the Associate Director of Project Censored, where he coordinates the Campus Affiliates Program, a news media research network of several hundred students and faculty at two dozen colleges and universities across North America. Andy's research and writing has been published in a wide variety of outlets, including Index on Censorship in These Times, Yes Magazine, Media, Culture, and Society, and the International Journal of Press and Politics. And of course, the Project Censored audience knows Andy Lee Roth is the co-editor of the annual Project Censored book. Latest is Project Censored State of the Free Press 2022. Andy Lee Roth, welcome back to the program. Thanks, Mickey. It's a pleasure to be on the air with you and Heidi today. And I'm looking forward to the conversation. And uh, it's unfortunately all too timely, the connections between surveillance and censorship. And Heidi Bogosian, let's start with you on surveillance and censorship. Our internet-connected world strengthens relationships between mass surveillance and censorship such that they are inseparable, you have mentioned. You've talked about this. You've written about this. Let's just start there with this big topic, and let's hear some of these concerns and the direction we've been heading. I like to think of modern surveillance as a drone that follows each of us around continuously. And with technology having developed as rapidly as it has, most of your listeners I know are aware that we have 
drones the size of mosquitoes, but they can literally be with us in different locations and hover for long periods of time compared with, for example, the kind of surveillance that the government did many decades ago where they would have to rely on, say, a still photograph or a videotape of a short span of time. And what this seems to have done is really bring the spheres of surveillance and censorship closer together so that they overlap, they uh, become almost inseparable. And I think that the tech industry has helped government censorship with all of the many new, often exciting digital communication systems, internet-connected devices, online learning capabilities, and different kinds of storage platforms that are able to streamline and perfect surveillance. The problem is that the results of surveillance are not immediately obvious to so many of us. And we tend to think in the short term, we love our convenience, we love how quickly the way we operate and interact with others has changed. And again, as with most things, there are two sides of the coin. Uh, many of these developments are, are simply wonderful and life enhancing, but it behooves us to think long-term. And here I guess is where imagination is needed to look at, for example, the connection between we know smoking and health and many other things that you may not see the result immediately, but in years or even months or decades, it becomes eye-opening. Heidi Bogosian, in your book, you talk about 20 myths about surveillance and privacy. These are amazing talking points because whenever one brings up concerns, you just brought up a raft of these issues and the fact that, yes, these things are convenient. Yes, the technology, they create wonderful tools for communication, for learning, so many things. But there's this other side. And anytime that you hear critics bring up that other side, the darker side of surveillance, you have a list of things that we commonly hear. Surveillance makes the nation safer. We certainly heard that especially after 9-11. You have a list here, no one wants to spy on kids. Police don't monitor social media. You have another, metadata doesn't reveal much about me. Congress and the courts protect us from surveillance. I can't stop it anyway. I mean, we could go on and on. But how do you address these? Break down for us why those kinds of knee-jerk reactions are problematic. One is, I believe, an unfettered trust that individuals have in their government and in corporate partners who, as we all know, have been granted greater rights with Supreme Court decisions over the years so that in many cases they do a lot of the dirty work for the government as private contractors, but are not as really beholden to constitutional strictures as government agencies are supposed to be. I think when you trust a powerful authority or entity like the government, especially when it is reinforced by multinational corporations, you do things because of the belief in the way they should be. Or for some of us who are a little older, we were raised to trust Uncle Sam and to respect government. But the problem is, 
it's really a matter of control. Control and conformity is the agenda of so many of the myths that you just referred to. We have a kind of naivete that, oh, the police wouldn't read our personal friendly communications, much less misinterpret them because they don't really know how kids might speak to each other or they don't understand different dialects or slang. And face it, they have a mandate under the guise of protecting our safety and our national security, which who can argue with that? The problem is most people don't know that actually these measures do not make us safer. There's no evidence that they do. And in fact, gathering so much data arguably makes us less safe because we've seen how the government does a terrible job of sifting through for the important kernels uh, of intelligence that could uh, prevent, you know, some tragedies that have happened in this country. Well, that's well put. And certainly we have more than a bigger brother problem here, especially in the last 20 years. And Andy Lee Roth, let's bring you into the conversation. One of the things we just heard Heidi Bogosian talk about is surveillance as a means of control, whether it's controlling behavior, pushing conformity, or sanctioning narratives. You have written at length about issues like censorship by proxy and the connections between surveillance and censorship. Andy Lee Roth. Thanks, Mickey. I want to pick up on some of the points that Heidi's already made so eloquently and, and maybe extend them a little. I think these links between surveillance and censorship are deep and profound. Of course, surveillance like censorship is most effective when it's invisible. And Heidi's talked some about how uh, modern surveillance imagined uh, through this metaphor of the drone is kind of omnipresent, but not always uh, within our conscious awareness and the upshot being control and pressures to conformity. And I want to talk about some of that, the links between surveillance and freedom of expression in terms of chilling effects, which in a legal context, chilling effects refer to the inhibition or discouragement of legitimate exercise of free expression, often with the threat of legal sanctions. But that term chilling effect has a much broader provenance than strictly legal context. Outside of legal context, we can talk about how the chilling effect can be the result of any kind of coercion or threat of coercion to keep people from saying what they think or know or feel. And I always come back to a story that we highlighted in the 2016 Censored Yearbook as one of the most important but underreported stories of that year, a story about a 2015 PIN America study. PIN America, the non-governmental organization that's associated with writers, has an international presence, champions of free expression. They polled more than 700 writers from 50 different countries about the extent to which they were now avoiding working on potentially controversial topics due to the fear of government spying. And this was in the wake of, as Heidi's mentioned already, the Edward Snowden revelations about the extent of mass surveillance, especially by the U.S. government. And an amazing 34% of the writers in liberal democracies reported some degree of self-censorship. The figure was much higher to 61% of writers living in authoritarian countries and countries that were deemed by PIN America to be semi-democratic. The, the figure was around 44%. 
So in other words, uh, a huge number of writers of all kinds, not just journalists, writers generally, were reporting to PEN America that they were avoiding controversial topics for fear of government surveillance and the consequences of that. So there's kind of a direct link in that study between what surveillance does to people whose job it is to interrogate the truth, inform the public about the truth and the news and perspectives that may run contrary to kind of official narratives and status quo understandings of who we are and what kind of society we live in. That report, I think, though it's now seven years old, continues to resonate powerfully. And I think as these technologies develop, and we can talk some about how they're integrated increasingly into our classrooms, our workplaces, and our homes, this dynamic relationship between surveillance and censorship just grows more complex and pervasive. Yeah, and I think the censorship by proxy issue that tends to be invisible, and again, we get kind of the same mythical pushback as Heidi Bogosian was saying, and I have nothing to hide, right? I, why should I be worried? We also have this issue that, well, corporations can decide what they do. They're private. They're not held accountable under the First Amendment, which has led Andy Lee Roth us to, to talk more and more about censorship by proxy at Project Censored. And of course, you've also written at length about algorithms, the new gatekeepers, how they determine the news we see. So it's a two-way street. The technology doesn't just look at what we're doing and keep track of it. It also guides it, influences it, prevents us from seeing certain things. It's, it's pretty pervasive and, and pernicious. And Heidi Bogosian, both of you have brought up Edward Snowden. So I wanted to point out that it seems to be the case that when we learn that these things are happening and happening in a way that is maybe as nefarious as our imaginations led them to be, it's usually because we found out, not by accident, but we found out because of whistleblowing. We found out because somebody inside the system told us that the things we suspected were actually happening. Heidi Bogosian, you've talked about Facebook you know, over 10 years ago, tens of millions of users that had no reason to think that their information would be gathered and used for political reasons, etc. Yet we found out, of course, that that was happening. Heidi? I think what you've just highlighted and you're talking about the example when Cambridge Analytica took data from from many, many Facebook users and used it to send targeted political ads without people's permission or knowledge. Our current technology, the act of surveillance is no longer just watching. It's gathering, amassing, storing, and using for purposes we either don't know about or didn't give permission for our data to be employed, be it for targeted advertising or other reasons. And some of those nefarious reasons, of course, bring in discrimination, for example, housing discrimination, banking discrimination. The information that's scooped up about us gives a really good profile, including our metadata, not just the content of our communications. So that's why I think Modern surveillance is an active process, much like we think of censorship as book banning and, you know, other kinds of activities, but it's not passive any longer. I'd like to remind our listeners you're tuned to the Project Censored show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. We are speaking with Heidi Bogosian and Andy Lee Roth right now. We're talking about censorship and surveillance, and we're going to continue that conversation to be 
uh, not passively surveilled after this brief musical break. Stay with us. Welcome back to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. We're joined today in this segment by Heidi Bogosian, a New York City-based attorney. Heidi is also executive director of the A.J. Musty Institute and supporting activist organizations. Also former executive director of the National Lawyers Guild. Heidi's book, Spying on Democracy, was published weeks after Edward Snowden's revelations of NSA mass surveillance. And her latest book is I Have Nothing to Hide and 20 Other Myths About Privacy and Surveillance. Andy Lee Roth is also with us, Associate Director of Project Censored. He's coordinator of the Campus Affiliates program there. His research has been included in the Index on Censorship in these times, Yes Magazine, Truthout, and many other places online, including the Marcaz Review, where he wrote a riveting piece last year called The New Gatekeepers, How Proprietary Algorithms Increasingly Determine the News We See. So just before the break, Heidi Bogosian, you went and did due diligence talking about surveillance and censorship, the definitions of these terms. And Andy Lee Roth, at Project Censored, we've long talked about censorship being anything that interferes with the free flow of information in a society that purports to have free press systems. So our definition of censorship has always been beyond the government striking out of information, though we know that happens. We've always talked about differing degrees of censorship and censorship by proxy, and I wondered if you could chime in a little bit more about why those broader definitions matter more now, especially with the ubiquitous kinds of surveillance we see technologically. I think it has to do, Mickey, with some of the connections that Heidi's noted you know, private industry and government institutions. So we talk about censorship by proxy as in some ways a new form of censorship that is identified by three hallmarks. One is it's undertaken by private corporations, which of course there's nothing in the First Amendment that says private corporations can't restrict freedom of the press. The First Amendment speaks to government restrictions, what we typically call prior restraint. So the first of the hallmarks of censorship by proxy is that it's done by private corporations. The second would be that this form of censorship often exceeds the limits on what governments can do. And the third is that these restrictions often serve both corporate and government or third party interests. That's, I think, a new kind of challenge that becomes a reality in part because of these newly developing technologies that are so pervasive in our lives that we take them for granted. We talk today about Googling things, using the, the brand name of a corporation to describe a common online practice of searching for information. That's, I think, an indicator of the sort of way that this infiltrates our thinking to the extent that we're, we become essentially unconscious of it. But of course, the Google algorithm that responds to your search queries is not itself a neutral tool. It's been designed by human beings 
to do certain kinds of tasks and to highlight some things and and disattend to others or downplay others. And that's, I think, going back to that metaphor that Heidi introduced, the idea of the kind of omnipresent but often invisible presence of surveillance. This is a case where it's not censorship per se, but it's a filtering of information that is by and large invisible to people, in part because the algorithms that, say, Google uses or YouTube uses are considered proprietary, meaning they're not accessible to the public, not even accessible for inspection to third-party reviewers in private. These corporations have resisted mightily when challenged by court cases every effort to force them to make their algorithms available to third-party inspectors to check for evidence of, of in effect, say, anti-LGBTQ bias being built into the algorithm. Every time, for instance, that YouTube has been sued by content creators on the grounds of their being biased, the courts have decided in favor of YouTube and against the content creators claiming systemic bias in how YouTube's algorithms operate. So Heidi Bogosian, can you discuss your views on this? Do you see any headway being made legally challenging this kind of corporate censorship by proxy? One of the things I was reflecting on as Andy was speaking, and I think this will answer the question in a minute, is how technology companies have insinuated themselves making enormous profits into U.S. classrooms and some libraries. I wasn't that familiar with what modern classrooms are like I don't have children, but I was reading about programs called, and here are a few examples, ProctorU, Proctorio, there are many others. And there are two different kinds that I have become familiar with. One are services that purport to keep children safer in school. And really what the companies have done in fashioning lucrative contracts with school systems is exploit parental and social fears of repeated mass shootings. And what that kind of program does is monitor social media, anything that the student uses through a school computer or a laptop that may be issued by the school to take home. And their language usage is monitored to flag certain words, you know, suicide, obviously, death, threats, maybe drugs and alcohol. And then they have a human being that also, I guess, is a second tier, investigates some of the warning words and they will follow up if they think a child poses a threat to him or herself or others. Now, of course, in these programs, the individuals who are trained to be that second layer of monitoring are, you know, paid minimum wage, if that, poorly trained. And the number of false alerts is huge, yet schools are paying millions or billions of dollars to rely on these. Another sort of companion kind of technology are, you mentioned COVID and changes with remote 
interactions and learning, companies are also purporting to be able to identify when test takers, remote test takers cheat. And how they do that is using biometric identification forms to look for, say, the number of times someone blinks their eye during a test. Now, these students are already nervous about taking the exam, and we're talking, I think, mostly graduate-level examinations, like the LSATs or whatever they need to get into a professional school. Facial movements, minor, tiny things that we all do, it's making students more nervous, and again, coming up with huge numbers of false positives. And I think vis-a-vis the legal question is slowly, and maybe it's hopefully accelerating now, parents and students are filing lawsuits when they believe their child or they themselves have had their privacy violated. There have been breaches, for example, of biometric databases And really, I believe it's Illinois has the strongest biometric protection where actually someone whose biometrics have been hacked has a right to sue for relief to the company that improperly stored them. California has, as we know, strong privacy laws. But one of the things that needs to happen is the rest of the states need to get their act together and enact similar kinds of legislation so that it will hopefully bring companies into compliance with best standards about storing, destroying after a prescribed number of years, the data that they collect, and also not using it for other reasons than those that they collected it for. But I think the public is becoming more aware. It just needs to happen faster, in my opinion. There's so many things there that we, we could do entire shows on several of the things you just talked about. And I, I do not teach with these kinds of technological tools for the very reasons that you were pointing out. But they have been adopted and in many cases wholesale and without question, which is very, very problematic. You know, in a few minutes we have left here, Heidi Bogosian and Andy Lee Roth, I wanted to get to digital literacy. Basically, what can we do, given that we are surveilled, given that we do use these technologies, what are some things that we can do to, to some degree, protect ourselves? Heidi, you talk about digital hygiene, and I know Andy Lee Roth, you've also written about the importance of digital literacy, certainly media literacies and multiple media literacies. Heidi, maybe we'll start with you and end with Andy. Could you give us a few tips or what you think are some things that we can consider about our digital existence? It starts with an overarching philosophy. Many people are embarrassed. They call themselves Luddites or they don't know how to do such and such online. We need to get beyond being embarrassed. This is our new world. This is our new alphabet. I personally think we should be teaching a host of literacy tests as soon as kids are able to type on a keyboard. Until then, I think it's up to each of us to admit what we don't know, what we want to learn, and to ask friends who do know or go online for resources for help. There are just a few basic things. Change your passwords often. Use passphrases instead of your go-to pet names or birthdays. Don't use the same password. I mean, I'm guilty of this for more than one account. 
we all do these things. A famous hacker who was arrested, I won't say his name, but I'm a big fan of his. He used a pet name on his password, and ultimately that helped when the FBI tracked him down. But another thing people may not know is when you're asked security questions, much of the information that people often put in, like your first city you lived in or where you were born, is publicly discoverable. So one site suggests making fictional answers to those. What fun! But enable two-factor authentication, don't ignore messages to install security updates. These are basic things that everyone can do. Get signal for protected messaging, although it doesn't protect your metadata, but you know, it's a big start. Delete your browser history and go online to Electronic Frontier, one of my favorite sites, or many others that exist. And, you know, in your spare time, just try to do something new to make an improvement. Every little bit helps the whole digital ecosphere. Andy Lee Roth, you've recently written about digital literacy, certainly critical media literacy. We have a book coming out on the censored press called The Media and Me, uh, which is a, a specifically a critical media literacy book for young people that actually does some of the things that Heidi Bogosian was just suggesting. Andy, your thoughts on the importance of digital literacy? Just picking up on things Heidi said, she mentions the Electronic Frontier Foundation. You can download the Privacy Badger, the Privacy Badger, and run that as an extension on your web browser. And it helps in really excellent ways with avoiding the ability of websites to track you. Remember, as I said earlier, that search engines and social media feeds are not neutral information sources. You can connect directly to news organizations and other outlets that display firm commitments to ethical journalism rather than relying on your social media feed for news. You could go to the, the outlet's website, sign up for its email list or its RSS feed, subscribe to the print version if there is one of the publication. Those direct connections remove the social media platform and therefore the surveillance capabilities of the technology as unnecessary and potentially biased intermediaries. Call out algorithmic bias when you encounter it. I think right now Congress is considering the Earnet Act, which we don't have time to get into, but one of the upshots of the Earnet Act, which purports to protect children from sexual abuse online, one of the consequences of the Earnet Act will be to undermine encryption online. And there are all kinds of problems with that and encryption is something that we should all be more aware of. And once you learn a little bit about it, you're probably going to be more inclined to lobby our representatives in Congress to protect into encryption. Um, so there's so many things we can do. Um, it doesn't have to be a case where you throw up in your hands and say, oh, there's nothing I can do, one of Heidi's 20 myths. There's plenty that people can do. You just have to find the sources that can guide you to to act effectively, both for your own self-interest, but also for the greater common good. We've been speaking with Andy Lee Roth and Heidi Bogosian. And as you can tell, this is a conversation that could be going on much, much longer and more in depth. And if you're in New York City, you have an opportunity to join Andy Lee Roth and Heidi Bogosian Saturday, August 27th. 
6 p.m. Eastern Time. That's Saturday, August 27th, 6 p.m. Eastern at Word Up Community Bookshop. Andy Lee Roth and Heidi Bogosian will be in conversation, moderated by Veronica Santiago Lou. Censorship, Surveillance, and Freedom of Expression. It's going to be an amazing evening in conversation. Heidi Bogosian, her recent book is I Have Nothing to Hide and 20 Other Myths About Surveillance and Privacy. Andy Lee Roth, co-editor of Project Censored State of the Free Press 2022. You can get more information at HeidiBogosian.com. You can get more information at ProjectCensored.org. The address for the Word Up Community Bookshop, by the way, is 2113 Amsterdam Avenue. That's in New York City, August 27th, 6 p.m. Eastern, Word Up Community Bookshop in New York City, Censorship, Surveillance, and Freedom of Expression. Andy Lee Roth, Heidi Bogosian, thank you so much for the important work you do, and thank you for joining us on the Project Censored show today. Thank you. Coming up next on the Project Censored show, Andy Lee Roth stays with us. He'll talk about his new op-ed, The Deadly Business of Reporting Truth. Journalists around the world increasingly face violence, and leaders, including President Biden, have been slow to act. We'll talk about the increased threats to journalists around the world And we'll be joined by Clayton Weimers, the new executive director of the Washington Bureau Office of Reporters Without Borders. Stay tuned. Welcome to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. In this segment of the program, we're going to continue on our theme regarding journalists. We just finished a segment with Andy Lee Roth and Heidi Bogosian on censorship and surveillance. Andy Lee Roth is going to stay with us for this segment of the program. And we are now also joined by Clayton Weimers. He is the new executive director of the Washington-based United States Office for Reporters Without Borders. Weimers will oversee Reporters Without Borders' engagement across English-speaking North America as part of its mission to promote the freedom, independence, and pluralism of journalism globally. Clayton Weimers, welcome to the Project Censored show. Thank you so much for having me. It's really a pleasure. It is an honor to have you. And again, I want to welcome back Andy Lee Roth, who was with us in the first segment, Associate Director of Project Censored, where he coordinates the Campus Affiliates Program. Uh, He's also been published in numerous outlets, including Index on Censorship in These Times, Yes Magazine, Media, Culture, and Society, and the International Journal of Press and Politics. Andy Lee Roth also is co-editor of Project Censored State of the Free Press 2022. That's her latest book out on Censored Press and Seven Stories Press. And Andy, you are also the author of a recent op-ed piece, The Deadly Business of Reporting Truth. Journalists around the world increasingly face violence and leaders, including President Biden, have been slow to act. And of course, that's going to be a big theme for this segment as we're joined by Clayton Weimers. Andy Lee Roth, welcome back to the program. Thanks so much, Mickey. 
Clayton, let's start with you and uh, the obvious question, Reporters Sans Frontiers, uh, an international group that looks at protecting journalists and raising awareness that the challenges journalists face, especially violence and the organization known in English as Reporters Without Borders. Clayton, you just took over as executive director for the U.S. branch of Reporters Without Borders. Tell our listeners a little bit more specifically what you do. Sure. So as our French name you alluded to suggests, you know, we were founded in Paris and are still headquartered there, but we are a global organization that has offices in 13 countries and a network of correspondents covering 150 countries. So we truly do have our eyes and ears on the ground everywhere, and we want to be in a position to monitor and respond in every corner of the globe. We are a press freedom watchdog in a sense, and if people do know us, they tend to know us for our index on press freedom, which ranks every country in the world according to their relative levels of press freedom. But more than being a watchdog, we also see ourselves as being a solutions-oriented organization that's looking towards the future. It's not enough to just run after the car after it's already passed you by. You need to get ahead of it and stay ahead of it. And so to that end, we do the traditional naming and shaming that NGOs and watchdogs do, but we're also out there trying to come up with the solutions to solve the problems before they crop up the next time. I think that's a really important component of what you do. And I've used the index a lot, the Press Freedom Index. It's it's a great conversation starter, to be frank, among people who are less familiar than in the United States in a land where American exceptionalism always has the big foam finger. We're number one on the Press Freedom Index this past year. I think it's we're 42. Is that right? That is right. Up from 44 from the year previous. Can you talk about how you all put together that index? Because I want to call attention to it. Certainly, I think it's something that our listeners uh, would really like to check out if they have not. RSF.org is the website. So Clayton Weimers. That index is the product of a year-long worth of data collection, both qualitative and quantitative. That network of correspondents in 150 countries that I mentioned before is instrumental in completing that data collection. We then have our head of data journalism working out of our Paris office collect and analyze all that data, and that goes into the ranking itself. But More than that, we always try to look for some sort of global trend that we can pull out of the numbers because the numbers by themselves don't tell a story. But if you look at the whole picture, you do see a trend. The trend that we wanted to highlight this year was the increased polarization of the news. We'd like to call it the Fox Newsification, if you will, of the opinion side of media creeping into the journalism side of media and impacting it in that way, causing greater distrust among readers and viewers and consumers of the news. And that is a, a growing threat to the you know free access of authentic information around the globe, not just here in the United States, but really everywhere. And we're going to get into that a little later, too, because that's one of the things that you're working on, you know, combating global mis- and disinformation. But unfortunately, we have some other things to talk about that are not easy to talk about. The Project Censored, of course, we've written it for quite some time about what Clayton was just talking about, the problems of misinformation, disinformation. Uh, We just finished a segment with Heidi Bogosian on censorship and surveillance and the connectivity of that. And part of that, part of that segue from that segment to this, one of the most severe forms of censorship, of course, is literally threats and violence against journalists around the world. If you look back over the last 10 years or so, a journalist is killed approximately once every eight days, I believe the figure is, for doing their job. So these aren't people who are journalists who happen to have accidents that end up being fatal. These are people who 
in their roles as journalists have been targeted and killed. So journalists are increasingly at risk of being killed or imprisoned for doing their jobs. And that's a situation, of course, that imperils press freedoms, compromises public rights to know, freedom of expression, freedom of information. And you can think about violence against journalists as the most basic and blunt form of censorship, right? If earlier we were talking with Heidi Bogosian about censorship and surveillance and censorship by proxy and online algorithms and other surveillance technologies as kind of subtle and pervasive forms of censorship, here we're talking about the other end of a spectrum, the diversity of ways that people can be silenced and ideas and information can be censored. Violence against journalists is obviously impactful for anyone in the profession, but I think a wider point is that for all of us who rely on journalism to understand the world and our place in it, we're also impacted, albeit indirectly, by this violence. An extraordinary chilling effect when we see especially the higher profile people. Clayton, you're going to talk about some folks that should be household names, but maybe aren't. A lot of people that are doing important journalistic work are folks that the public doesn't know as much about. Recently, we had a tragic attack against Salman Rushdie uh, in Western New York, an intellectual, not a journalist per se, but a writer, a proponent of free expression. One of the more high profile cases or the higher profile cases was Jamal Khashoggi, Clayton Weimers, and the Saudis uh, murdered him and basically got away with it. There's been little outcry in, in, in the United States about that. Could, could you, Clayton, could you comment on that kind of a high-profile case, and, and what does that do for your work at RSF? The world was rightfully outraged at the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, right out in the open, too, uh, which really speaks to how comfortable the Saudi regime feels violating these norms, because who is going to uphold them? Who is going to hold their feet to the fire? when they hold you know, one of the ultimate pieces of leverage, which is the oil that the global economy depends on. Everyone, I think, in the press freedom community in the NGO world has been really dismayed to see this slide from United States leaders like Joe Biden say, you know, we're going to make Saudi Arabia the pariah that they really are to the fist bump with MBS that occurred just a few weeks ago. For the last publication of the index, one of the ways that we wanted to highlight some of these bad actors around the world was we uh, we hired this billboard truck to go around to the embassies here in D.C. and call out these governments for their poor record on press freedom. And of course, Saudi Arabia was one of the countries that we highlighted. That very day, Saudi Arabia was participating in an open house at their embassy here in D.C. as part of the open embassies, open house program that happens in D.C. once a year. They hadn't previously been participating, and this was just four years after they murdered a Washington Post columnist. They're having this open house less than a mile away from the Washington Post headquarters. That really speaks to how they think that they've gotten away with it, that they can re-enter polite Washington society, if you will, and host these cultural events when back at home there's 28 journalists who are still in jail in Saudi Arabia. There's many more who have travel bans or who have been prevented from working or who have been forced to flee their country and are living in exile abroad. Yeah, it's quite remarkable. That does show not just hubris, but it speaks to global politics. The fact that they can basically get away with this kind of a major crime against journalists, I mean, that does send a shot across the bow. Andy Lee Roth, that's that chilling effect that we talk about. And Press Freedom Tracker is another organization you know, we, we look at. And 
there's been a serious rise in attacks and threats of violence against journalists across the world, but also in the United States. Isn't that right, Andy Lee Roth? That's true. I mean, we've written about that in the last couple of censored yearbooks that that American exceptionalism that you invoked earlier, Mickey, probably has many members of the public thinking like, oh, journalists are at risk overseas, abroad, either they're journalists who are not from the United States or they're U.S. journalists working in foreign countries. But as the U.S. Press Freedom Tracker meticulously documents, increasingly journalists here at home are at risk. Their physical safety and their freedom as journalists are compromised. We saw this in the 2016 presidential election cycle at public protests and rallies. We also saw this since the advent of the Black Lives Movement, journalists reporting on protests, part of the Black Lives Movement, journalists reporting domestically on electoral campaigns are subject to violence, not only by law enforcement, but also by, in effect, fellow citizens. And again, the U.S. Press Freedom Tracker, which ought to be a resource on everyone's online desktop, keeps meticulous track of these assaults and arrests and attacks that result in journalists' equipment being damaged. As with the global trend of violence against journalism, so too there is a domestic trend. So Clayton Weimers, we just talked a little bit about Saudi Arabia, and I know Andy Lee Roth, you talk about this in in your recent piece. Let's not forget Israel and Palestine. In May of this year, Palestinian-American journalist Shireen Abu Akleh was killed, killed in the West Bank while reporting for Al Jazeera. And it's pretty much been ascertained that it was an Israeli sniper. Clayton Weimers, can you talk about that case and the lack of traction that we seem to be getting there in terms of accountability? Anything that involves the U.S. relationship with Israel inherently gets tricky very quickly. There has been quite a bit of momentum in the U.S., but it has to be said mostly in progressive circles to hold Israel accountable for this. There have been efforts in Congress, especially. I know a number of members of Congress have sent letters to the State Department demanding an investigation. I know there are some wheels turning for looking into whether the Leahy Law can be applied, which is a law that says that any time an American-made weapon is used in a war crime or a crime against humanity, then U.S. military assistance should be cut off to that country. And if that gets triggered, you know that has profound consequences that reach well beyond this case, which, you know, in and of itself suggests that it's probably not going to happen, but that we're in that territory suggests how grave, how serious this situation is. This is not an isolated incident for Israel. This is not the first journalist who has lost their life while covering Gaza or the West Bank. And sadly, I don't think it will be the last because Israel has not paid any sort of consequences here. Unfortunately, the United States government has not really signaled any real enthusiasm to initiate its own investigation. They did what they called a forensic analysis on the bullet that was used that was provided to them by the Palestinian Authority that suggested that it came from an Israeli weapon, but it didn't say anything else. And the report was put out on the 4th of July, ensuring that no one would pay attention to it. And it was framed in such a way that said there is no evidence that suggests that Shireen Abu Akleh was targeted. Well, of course, an analyzing bullet doesn't tell you anything about the motive or intention of the shooter. Israel continues to hold the weapon itself. They know who fired the weapon, and they're not providing that evidence to the United States, and the United States hasn't been pushing nearly hard enough to gather it. 
But this case is particularly egregious because Shireen was an American citizen. So the United States has an obligation to investigate this death, even beyond its obligation to the values it wants to uphold, but to protect U.S. citizens abroad. But unfortunately, this speaks to a trend that I think we're going to get to in a little bit, which is that even American citizenship does not protect you when you're targeted as a journalist abroad. We just passed a pretty grim anniversary on August 14th. That marked 10 years since the freelance journalist Austin Tice was abducted in Syria. To this day, we believe he is still being held captive. RSF has been vociferous for 10 years, calling on the United States to negotiate directly with the Syrians to bring him home. But three successive presidential administrations have failed to get the job done. Clayton Weimers, we're going to talk about that after this break. So let's hold that thought. I'd like to remind you, you're tuned to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. We are joined by Clayton Weimers. He's the new executive director of the Washington-based U.S. Office for Reporters Without Borders, rsf.org. We are also joined uh, by Associate Director of Project Censored, Dr. Andy Lee Roth. We will continue our conversation after this brief musical break. Stay with us. Welcome back to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. Today in this segment, we're joined by Clayton Weimers, the new executive director of Reporters Without Borders, Washington, D.C. office, overseeing Reporters Without Borders engagement across English-speaking North America as part of its mission to promote freedom, independence, and pluralism of journalism globally. Andy Lee Roth is associate director of Project Censored, co-edited the most recent Project Censored book, State of the Free Press 2022, Andy Lee Roth is also author of a recent op-ed you can find at projectcensored.org, The Deadly Business of Reporting Truth. And we're talking about that issue right now. And Clayton Weimers, you just brought this up before the break, and Andy talks about this in his recent op-ed. You just mentioned the case of one person. You just mentioned the Austin Tice case, which had an anniversary of August 14, 2012. And then, of course, there's another one in August the 26th, which is Christopher Allen. Austin Tice is the American journalist who was captured 10 years ago on August 14th and remains in captivity. Um, And you know, we're hoping every day that today is the day that we bring Austin home. Christopher Allen was killed five years ago on August 26 in South Sudan while he was covering the civil war there. He was a young freelance journalist who already had a lot of experience covering war zones. He had been in Donetsk in, in Ukraine during the first war there in 2014. Open source intelligence suggests to us that he was targeted while holding a camera, while fairly distanced from any of the direct fighting. But the truth is we don't really know what happened because there has been no investigation to speak of. The South Sudanese authorities haven't really shown any inclination to investigate. But meanwhile, the United States government also hasn't initiated any investigation. And ordinarily, you know, if an American citizen is killed abroad, the FBI or the Department of Justice is going to go in there and try and figure out exactly what happened. But we have had no success in initiating that kind of an investigation in his case. 
which is very frustrating for the family who really just wants some information, some answers and some closure. You know, realistically, we understand that who knows what justice means in a case like this, you know, when a reporter is killed in a war zone. But the United States has an obligation to at least find out what happened. But I think both of these cases speak to larger problems at play here. It's not just that we need to investigate or seek justice for these individuals. It's that when you fail to fight for these individual journalists, it puts reporters and fixers and producers and media workers all over the world at, at greater risk because it tells the bad actors and the criminals out there, there will be no consequences if you target a journalist. I don't think it's any coincidence that Vladimir Putin's army in Ukraine has been pretty unabashed in its targeting of, of journalists because they've looked around the world and they've seen, like we talked about, Mohammed bin Salman getting away with Jamal Khashoggi. They've seen cases like that go nowhere and they know that they can ride it out as well. Putin has cracked down on journalists in, in their own country, an egregious uh, crackdown in censorship and things happening inside Russia. And you mentioned earlier, reporters are unarmed. Interestingly, the Israeli government recently talked about reporters being armed, armed with cameras. In other words, to them, that's more dangerous because they'll be caught doing some of these heinous things that they're doing. Andy Lee Roth, let's bring you back to the conversation. The Israeli defense forces don't consider journalists covering protests to be journalists. They consider them to be participants in those protests, and journalists are targeted as such. But of course, we know outside of that down-the-rabbit-hole logic that a camera is a weapon in the same sense as a gun or a bomb, we know that taking photographs is journalistic work. It's the work of journalism. It's not a combatant's role to take photos or to otherwise report on conflict. And I think one of the things I would say is it's easy for us as consumers of news to become complacent. We have access to so much news in this digital age. That abundance of information makes it very easy to overlook the kinds of gaps in knowledge that's created by violence and repression and censorship. And I always think of Joel Benjamin and his 2014 book, The New Censorship, where he says, ensuring that news and information circulate freely throughout societies and across borders is the challenge of our time. We talk so much about this being an information age and a digital age and the plethora of information and our unprecedented access to information, I think can easily kind of blinker or blind us to the gaps that are created when authorities in South Sudan are allowed to overlook and not pursue Christopher Allen's case, when it's been a 10-year uphill battle for the family of Austin Tice to get administration in a White House to try to pursue direct negotiations with the government of Syria to find out what the status of Austin Tice is and whether it would be possible to bring him home. These are very important cases. Many of these cases, like you suggested, Andy, uh, a lot of folks don't don't follow this or they're unaware of this. Um, your piece is well sourced and linked at projectcensor.org. You can go to rsf.org to find out a lot more information about, well, unfortunately, a lot more of these kinds of cases. 
and Clayton Weimers. Andy Roth and I recently did a panel with Kevin Gostola and Rebecca Vincent of RSF on the Julian Assange case in particular. And two things, wanted to get your views on what's happening with the Assange case. RSF has been one of the more vocal groups globally speaking out uh, against his treatment in the extradition trial. And then after that, of course, we want to talk more specifically about what are some things you're doing to combat these kind of challenges that face journalists. Anytime you bring up Assange's name, you're going to get a whole host of reactions from all sorts of people. That's the nature of being a controversial figure. But I think it's always important to take a step back and look at what the government is actually pursuing Julian Assange for. They are accusing him of violating the Espionage Act for publishing leaked documents. Really, what it all boils down to is they're pursuing him because he embarrassed the United States government. He exposed war crimes. He exposed mistreatment of prisoners and the way we were prosecuting the war. That, to RSF, is is not a violation of the Espionage Act. That is, in fact, his duty as a publisher. And a number of legacy media organizations like the Washington Post and the New York Times took those published documents and ran with them and won awards and wrote articles that illuminated the public on what U.S. foreign policy was doing at the time. So now to have... A lot of people turn their back on Julian Assange and sort of look the other way as the United States government seeks his extradition is really disheartening because when it comes to the published of leaked documents, the public needs that. That is a public good. That is a, a public service. And the effect that using the antiquated 1914 espion, uh, 1917 Espionage Act, which is full of convoluted, archaic language in the first place, to go after a publisher of leaked documents, it has one goal and it has one effect, which is to freeze out future leakers and to make sure that people are too afraid to speak out about government abuses in the future. Andy Roth, your take on Assange. Yeah, I mean, I agree with the basic point that Clayton made that uh, for why Assange is a target in this case of the Espionage Act. And I think with regard to kind of establishment press outlets in the United States, um, we've noted in several projects, censored yearbooks and other forums, that it's a case of shoot the messenger, right? Assange is subject to, first of all, his life has been turned inside out um, for years now, and he's facing... Uh, some of the uh, strongest charges possible, despite the fact that he's not a U.S. citizen, has very limited ties actually to the United States. Um, uh, but the people who engaged in the wrongdoing that were documented by the leaks that Assange and WikiLeaks published have never been held accountable for those misdeeds, arguably violations of, of uh, international law, um, so, you know, to see then kind of establishment news coverage of the case against Assange uh, displaying such systemic slant uh, over and over again across outlets is, uh, to use the word Clayton used earlier in a different context, uh, disheartening. Andy Lee Roth, Associate Director of Project Censored, has been with us for the hour today. Thank you so much for your time, Andy. Author most recently of an op-ed, The Deadly Business of Reporting Truth at ProjectCensored.org. Andy, thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much, Mickey. And also special thanks to Clayton Weimers, the new Executive Director of the Washington Bureau Office for Reporters Without Borders. You can learn more at rsf.org. Clayton Weimers, thanks so much for the work you do and for joining us on the Project Censored show today. Thanks for having me on. 
living conditions, not free market propaganda and corrupt politicians. Cause they own by special interest groups that fund their campaign. You've been listening to the Project Censored Show, established in 2010 by myself, along with Peter Phillips. I'm the executive producer, Mickey Huff, of this program. Anthony Fest, our senior producer. Thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in. We'll see you next time.